welcome to Series 2 of the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I'm Leslie Goodburn and I decided to develop the podcast after the death of my husband Seth from pancreatic cancer. I wanted to help others understand the disease, its impact, the work that goes on every day to find treatments and hopefully one day a cure. Throughout the series you'll be accompanied by me and my friend Charlotte Foster from Charlotte Foster Productions and we'll talk all about the aspects of the disease from biology to emotional and physical impact. Along the way, we'll meet patients, families, doctors, nurses, oncologists, researchers, lots of different people with varied and different interesting experiences of the disease. The podcast will be frank about the reality of the disease. They will show the commitment and dedication of people working to support a breakthrough in a cancer where survival rates have barely changed in the last 50 years. But they will also focus on the love, the community of support and personal stories of those whose lives are affected. So join us on our second journey of discovery via the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast, made in memory of Seth Goodburn. Welcome to this episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. Right now, it is November 2019 and November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. So you're getting a few more episodes than you would normally. This is the penultimate episode for this month. We've got one more to come before the end of the month. But don't worry, we will still be continuing these podcasts for the foreseeable future as long as we can. This episode Uh, the person you're about to hear from, left me speechless. It's not very often people will say that I don't talk very much, but this episode left me speechless because I was just sitting there open-mouthed listening to this woman talk about what it is she does. Now, number one, she's got a cracking accent. Number two, the things she was saying about the research she does is absolutely mind-blowing. So without further ado, I'm going to let today's guest introduce themselves. My name is Christine Icabuzio and I am the director of the David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City, United States. First thing is I'm really interested in fundamental questions in cancer biology. And by fundamental, I mean I really want to understand how things work, what makes a cancer cell a cancer cell, things that are just very inherent to biology and cells and things like that. And fundamental also to me means that I really care about working on questions that have impact for patients. There's two kinds of science. Actually, maybe you can even say three. I learned this years ago when I was in training. There are some questions that are very, very interesting to work on. And finding the answer is a a wonderful intellectual experience and an endeavor. But once you get that answer, you have to say, well, what am I going to do with this information? How is it going to help somebody across the street who's being diagnosed, right? And... I think it's okay if how it's going to help somebody might be 10 years down the road, but if you 
know the path to that 10 year outcome. But there's science where you, there's no, it's really interesting, there's no idea what the outcome would ever be. I don't want to give any particular examples as somebody somewhere would be highly insulted that I think their, their work is not uh, helping anybody. And then there's work that is germane to the patient experience. Um, it might not be the most interesting project to work on. It might be very tedious and a lot of work, but it's of the ultimate importance to help a patient. So for me, like I sometimes I think of clinical trials that way, right? They're so important. There's nothing more important than a clinical trial. Aspects of it can be very interesting, but there's a lot of paperwork and legalities and everything to protect patients. Absolutely. So I try to find that happy medium, right? It's like super interesting questions, but it's really going to help a person. And I would also say that just because something is difficult to answer or it's difficult to address is not a reason to not work on it. And I'm actually very attracted to that. If something is hard, then I want to do it because I want to overcome the perceived hurdles and show this can be done. So my work related to running an autopsy program is an example of that. I started this type of work 15 years ago. And at the time, I didn't get a lot of support from many people who said it was a bad idea, you'll ruin your career, you're being mean to patients with cancer, you're a terrible person, that was the feedback I got. But I thought, I think patients are pretty smart and they really have an idea. So I guess to explain what an autopsy program is, before we talk a little more about it, is it's a program where patients who have pancreatic cancer, it gives them the means to consent on their own behalf to donate their cancer tissues after they pass away to support pancreatic cancer research. And what that does is it empowers the patient because in a situation in a terrible disease like pancreatic cancer, everything can feel out of control and your body's out of control. And this is something they can control. They can make the decision on their own. They can decide, you know, they can learn about the science that their tissue would support. It's a last wish, it's, it's a legacy, it's empowering. It really helps people at the end of life. And it helps families, it gives families closure and to know that their loved one has contributed. So that's very powerful. And then the science that can be done with those tissues is so powerful because you really think about it, if you wanna understand why patients with pancreatic cancer why their tumors metastasize, why they resist treatment, you need to look at the disease in the stage where that is what is happening. And all the work in pancreatic cancer, and this occurred to me back in 2002, maybe, when I was starting my career, is I wanted to study metastasis, and all the tissue for pancreatic cancer was coming from the people who had surgery, which is a minority of people with pancreatic cancer. And I wanted to study the metastases, and there weren't any. So this program, this type of approach was being done in prostate cancer at the time. It was very powerful, and I thought I want to try it for pancreatic cancer. 
I didn't expect it to work as well as it would. I thought I might get five patients to consent. I would write a paper. I would get some tissue. And it just really, it just took off in a way I did not anticipate that I realized that we were tapping into something so much more powerful than just creating a tissue resource for science. We were really tapping into the pancreatic cancer community and patients are so altruistic and part of the process and they're part of the solution, I think, by having them involved and saying, this is not going to help me, but if it can help the next person in my situation, if it can help learn something to help my family. And it's been, um, it's been an extraordinary privilege to be involved in these end of life conversations with patients and then to actually do the procedure myself. And people often say, is that hard? Is that depressing? Is that sad? And my answer is no. I actually feel like I'm helping them. I am helping fulfill their wishes. And that makes me happy for them. And then to be able to talk to the family and you know, say, we found this, we found that. Oh, we're going to use the tissue for this project. It's very powerful. And the science that has come of the tissues has been very high impact, really answering questions that are really making a difference in how people think of the disease. That's the whole point. That's the whole point is, you know, something super interesting, but really gets at something important for patients. And if you can accomplish both of those, you're in a really good situation. And I've been very blessed to have a good idea years ago. <laughs> and some people around me, while a lot of people said it would not work, um, my mentors said, what, what can we do to help you? And uh, I, I, thanks to them, I mean, there's so many people involved. So that's in essence what I do, the type of program, what I run. And then I use the tissues. Um, I'm a cancer geneticist. So my focus has largely been on understanding how genes become mutated, how the DNA changes when tumors metastasize. That's how I've used it, but it can be used in so many ways. Going back to what you mentioned about having those conversations with patients when they're at the end of their lives, how, how do you broach that then? How do you, right. did you bring it up? We do not advertise because that, you could just see how that would be um, very sensitive. So it has to start with the patient's oncologist who will either bring it up to them because they have a good relationship with the patient. The patient's maybe already been consenting to other research protocols, so they might be a sense that the patient is open-minded to things like that. Um, sometimes the patient brings it up to the oncologist and says, is there a way I'd like to donate my body or donate my tissues? So once the person, uh, once the patient expresses an interest in that, then we're contacted and they get permission and say, will you give us permission to contact the program at Memorial Sloan Ketting? Our program is called the Last Wish Program. And do you get permission for somebody from the Last Wish program to uh, come and speak to you some more about the program? So then when we go into the room, they're expecting us. And I always start with 
you know, I introduce myself and I'll just say, what can I do for you? And then they just talk and they lead the conversation. And what we really want to emphasize is nothing is happening to them. They are in complete control. They can say exactly how they want their tissues used, how they might want the procedure limited, um, anything. You know, they are in complete control. Um, and then we do the consent process. There's some forms and whatnot, but we try to make it as easy as possible, as transparent as possible, so that they know when they're talking to me or a member of my staff, those are the only people they need to talk to because we are the same people doing the procedures and the same people working with the tissue and distributing the tissue. And again, distributing the tissue is not even done without their permission. So that's, that's really important because the way the laws work in the United States, and I think this is everywhere, is that uh, once a person passes away, they're no longer considered a human subject. And so all the uses of tissue and all those laws to protect patients go away. And I really like the idea that they should still have a say about what happens to their body um, when they pass away. So that's a little bit of how I mean it's very empowering. There, there I always tell them, you are in the driver's seat and I am just here to help you with what you want and also you mentioned that you're you know you do the procedure yourself how important is that to you that you do that yourself it's um it's important to me uh, for many reasons as a it's important to me because i've made a promise to the person that i am i am the one doing the procedure and I, I want to, there's almost a sense of you want to take care of them, right? And I want to tell their family, you know, after we, we finished the procedure, we accomplished everything we wanted to, um, to achieve. Um, I, I learn a lot. I always learn a lot, no matter how many cases I do, because you always see their clinical course and what happened. And then you'll read about their clinical course and what happened and then you you see for yourself with your eyes um, what the disease looks like and it just answers questions on a clinical level so as a pathologist there's there's a level of being just intellectually curious you know to, to want to know what's going on but um, but also just you know to feel like we're doing that for the patient it's very rewarding uh, to be able to do that and just trying to, you know, do what's right for patients everywhere, get these tissues, address the questions. And I, I feel like we are doing that. And what would you say have been the most sort of the significant learnings you've had so far? Oh, so there's the ones that are published and there's the ones we're still working on. Which uh, are yes. Really? <laughs> really exciting but you know there because uh, we're, we're generating so much data mm. that a bottleneck sometimes is to be able to write it up um, that's a good problem to have that's a great problem to have so one of the first things we the very first thing we discovered was based on simply publishing the results of the first 76 patients that we did an autopsy on and 
before I did that project, my assumption and the assumption of the field was that everybody with pancreatic cancer dies of widespread metastatic disease. So much so that papers would start out that way. Most patients with pancreatic cancer, you know, will die of widespread metastatic disease. So the first case I did, the patient had widespread metastatic disease. The second patient I did had metastatic disease, but it was kind of confined to the abdomen. It wasn't everywhere. The third patient whose autopsy I did had no metastases and died of the primary tumor just growing into surrounding structures. So the patient died of complications of that. And that was an eye opener. So that was within three cases we noticed that. By 76 cases, we realized clearly there's about 25% to a third of patients where their cause of death is not metastasis. Their cause of death is the primary tumor grows into surrounding structures and is not controlled. So that that was kind of huge yeah. because for the radiation oncology field, who's very interested in using radiation to provide local control, that gave them some evidence that there is a subset of patients where radiation could be very efficacious. Um, then there's also patients, you know, a similar scenario, but they might have one metastasis. We call that oligometastatic disease. They might have one or two. Those metastases did not at all contribute to their to their their death from their tumor. So just trying to change the mindset of how patients die has that was very eye opening. That there is a spectrum and. Not all metastases are the same. Not all primary tumors are the same. The thought was that it's a very homogeneous disease and that everybody experiences the exact same disease course, which is untrue. And that was just from summarizing the data of the first 76 patients. Then um, the second thing we did was incredibly from these samples, even though the patient might pass away, but the tissues might still be alive and the cells are still alive for a period of time. So you can make um, cultures from the tumors. You can make xenografts, which is growing the tumors in a, in a mouse, uh, a special kind of mouse that will grow the tumors and it has no effect on the mouse, but the mouse does us a favor and just grows a tumor on its back. So we have material to work with. Um, so we were able to do that. And those samples that we grew in the mice were used as part of the first study of the pancreatic cancer genome. The first pancreatic cancer exome, excuse me. Um, so there were 24 pancreatic cancers, seven of them were patients who had an autopsy. And it was important to include those patients because we wanted to include samples of pancreatic cancer that were of a more advanced stage compared to the other 17, which were from patients who had surgery. We wanted to see if you look, if you combine later stage, how is that going to influence your findings? So that was very exciting. And then the paper that followed on that was essentially, we used the data from that project 
And we were able to show in a paper we published in Nature that metastases arise from the primary tumor. That wasn't necessarily known. It seems obvious, but it wasn't, it was never demonstrated that metastases arise from the primary tumor. The subclones in the primary tumor are very large, millions of cells, um, and different metastases to different sites arise from different parts of the primary tumor. So it was uh, taking advantage of this resource and all of the metastases in a person and their matched primary tumor and sequencing every sample from the person and able to really, I think, make an extraordinary leap forward in our understanding of how metastasis occurs, what that process looks like, at least at a genetic level. And it turns out the genetics of metastasis, which was my original goal, um, there's not really any genes that cause... That caused metastasis. So I, you know, you could say I, I proved the null hypothesis, I guess, that um, there's no gene that pops up in a subclone that promotes metastasis in a person. And it's really the genes that are mutated, that become mutated when the tumor is forming are the ones that dictate how it behaves. If it's going to metastasize widely or if not at all, and the primary tumor will grow in an uncontrolled way. So it's all linked together. The same genes that cause pancreatic cancer influence how it behaves once it becomes invasive. For someone who's got no medical background, no science background, um, I am very much the, the, the woman on the street, the layman as such. This is all sounds really exciting and really fascinating, but it also sounds like it's, it's quite a, a new way of looking at things as well, or a different approach to normal. Is that, is that fair to say? I I mean, I certainly think so. I, I don't think I can be objective anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, I certainly think so. I, I mean, there are some questions for which a single sample of a tumor is absolutely adequate to answer the question. Um, absolutely. But there are other lines of investigation, for example, if you're interested in heterogeneity, if you're interested in genetics and metastasis, if you're interested in how a tumor forms, uh, you know, not all cells in the tumor are the same and how that process occurs, you need something like a program like this to understand that. So one of the things we've learned, and this is a very recent, I would say a a very recent sort of uh, realization is that, I'll give you an example, is um, in pancreatic cancer, we found with respect to genetics that there's not a lot of genetic alterations in metastases, right? It's very homogeneous. There's a few mutated genes, and it's still so aggressive. And then there's other tumor types, for example, a certain form of kidney cancer where there's a lot of heterogeneity and each of the metastases might have a different mutation. It's very different. I can never understand how they could be so different. Uh, It crossed my mind, am I doing something wrong? But it turns out that depending on the tumor type, 
you get a very different answer. So that's a very recent realization is that in this field, which we call, you know, officially evolutionary biology of cancer is what it is, is different tumor types evolve in different ways. And we think of everything in terms of evolution because cancer is in essence, it's an evolutionary process. The exact same thing that happens in the natural world with species evolution over long periods of time, it's the exact same thing occurring in a tumor, just that in the tumor it's much faster. So different tumors have different rules by which they grow and evolve. And pancreas is at one, it's at an extreme end of it in that, as I said, all the changes occur very early and then it doesn't evolve much after. And it's still very aggressive. And we wanna know how is that possible? Uh, whereas in other tumors, there's a lot of evolution that still occurs after the tumor forms. So that's where we are right now. It's a little theoretical. It's a little bit of science that we're doing right now. And it's a little bit of just talking and thinking and troubleshooting with other investigators doing this and other tumor types on what type of studies do we need to do to understand that. Um, do we start, do we need to start doing pan cancer type of studies, you know, because for every tumor type, what you learn in one tumor type really is information for other tumor types. So as much as I am dedicated to pancreatic cancer, I'm really dedicated to all cancer types. And what you learn in one really could have implications in understanding another. And so there is so much to learn from looking at other tumor types and talking with, with investigators working on other tumor types, because sometimes you learn more that way than when you just keep talking to your colleagues who are all working on pancreatic cancer. Um, you need somebody to challenge you and make you think about your ideas. So. See, now it makes absolute sense as to why you're working with people from the Natural History Museum when you describe a tumour as it's an evolutionary being or object, right. object sort of thing. Absolutely. Of course it would make sense. So how's that sort of working for you, that, 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 that coming together, that, that relationship? That, that has been extraordinary. Um, when I moved my lab to Memorial Sloan Kettering, that was around the time when I was really starting to think very heavily about cancer as an evolutionary process. And I should say there's many people that were already thinking that way about cancer. So I was by no means the first, but um, through my own process, I just came to appreciate it more and more. And it's important for pancreatic cancer, for cancer in general. So uh, it occurred to me, uh, who knows evolution better than people at the Museum of Natural History, and they were an absolute, very easy to get in touch with, an absolute delight to interact with, and our, our interactions have really been of the nature of um, an intellectual exchange, because they, they don't know about cancer, but they know about evolution, and they know about when you see certain patterns in sequencing data, what that means. So for them, the time scale is hundreds of millions of years. So they might know when you see a certain pattern, that's when two continents separated, you know, two land masses separated from each other. 
um, or two continents came together and the species were exposed to each other. So they have a very different perspective and they say, oh, well, when you see that, that usually means this. And because we have the exact same kind of patterns, then we can start thinking like, oh, if we see this, that must mean that. And it just is a completely different perspective of thinking about cancer. It's been so eye-opening. Um, but they also do have computational tools, you know, methods of computer science that are they've been doing a very long time that we do not have in the cancer community. So that is a way in which we are um, working with them to develop computational methods to better understand our genetic data that we are generating from our, our cancer cells um, and our samples that we have. So that is something right now that we are, um, I would say in the next year, we'll probably get to the point that they can start analyzing our data and you know, start again looking for some patterns that they see over and over in the natural world and we don't know if those things happen in cancer. And it all comes down to trying to understand how do cancers adapt and resist treatment. Um, that is the same thing as a selective pressure. I'll give you an example. Whenever I give a talk about this, I always start by showing a slide of uh, dinosaurs with the meteor flying overhead. And it's a potent example. Everybody knows at some point. You might not remember that the, the meteor landed in, you know, off of the Yucatan Peninsula, and it's called the Chicxulub Crater. It doesn't matter. The point is there was a meteor and then the dinosaurs just disappeared after that. Um, so I usually show that and then I'll show a patient sitting in a chemotherapy chair with the chemotherapy bag. And I'll say it's the exact same situation. The dinosaur is the tumor. The meteor is the chemotherapy. And the species that survived the meteor and ended up populating the earth today are the populations that were resistant and were selected for after that catastrophic event. So in a person, the chemotherapy is the selective pressure, it's the meteor, and then the tumor, the, the disease, the, the tumor cells that recur are the species that populated the earth. And when you, when you put it that way, people say, oh, that makes sense, it's the exact same thing. Instead of ta we're talking, in one case, we're talking about weeks to months it happens. In the other one, we're talking, you know, millions of years. But it's the same thing. It just absolutely makes sense. And I can't believe I've never thought about it or heard it before. And it just absolutely, in my head, I'm going, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it makes perfect sense that you have that, that working relationship as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's whole conferences about this, the evolutionary biology of cancer um, here in the States. That's a, a new conference. Um, that is going to be run by uh, an, or uh, an organization called the American Association of Cancer Research, AACR. Um, so it's really, it's really catching on. Um, it used to kind of be like this interesting little side thing that, uh, you know, and you, your talk would be in a side room of a meeting. <laughs> And it's becoming a little more main stage hmm. because, you know, we, we have, we're getting more and more treatments and all these targeted therapies, but with the targeted therapy is a very strong selective pressure on the tumor that 
you know, can allow those resistant clones to come up much more quickly. Uh, so getting samples from patients from the autopsies who have been on a clinical trial allows you to understand how did the tumor resist therapy and why. So then you can go back and the next person treated that way, perhaps you add the next drug that works in a different way and that combats that. Uh, so it kind of goes, it's uh, sort of circular, I would say. Um, and it's, it's why patients are critical to the process of understanding how all of this works. So what's next then? What, what, what's sort of the next few months looking like, the next year or so looking like? Um, we have a few more papers to get out. Um, kind of really... kind of really establishing what we think is uh, the baseline of pancreatic cancer. And the way I would describe it as when I started my career, we had a certain way of understanding pancreatic cancer and what we thought were the genetics of pancreatic cancer, the biomarkers of pancreatic cancer, the treatments of pancreatic cancer. And we're in a completely different era now. I almost in my mind, I think of it as pancreas 2.0. It's, it's a completely different story. It's been fascinating to be a part of the pancreatic cancer community because there's been so much work and so many advances by so many people. Uh, but the, the, those advances have happened so quickly so that uh, I, I'm halfway through my career. And I've already seen incredible changes in how the disease is managed and diagnosed and there are people who are having good outcomes and it's, it's just a matter of time the curve is going to go up and people will start not dying of pancreas cancer but living with it and I absolutely am confident that that's where we're going. I told you it was a good episode didn't I? Were you sitting there like I was just open mouthed thinking oh my goodness and of course, it just makes sense. I hope you've been left feeling really hopeful as well, because I certainly, when I finished talking to Christine, went, actually, there's so, so much hope to come, isn't there? That You know, the future, it's not necessarily going to be an, an easy road, but you know what? I think it's a road that is going to be exciting times ahead. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, I just want to say thank you very much to everybody who has been supporting these episodes. This podcast won't happen without your donations. And this episode wouldn't happen without donations from Claire Haddon, Gillian Hood and Vicky Graham. So thank you to those three for the contributions they have made to keep the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcast going. If you'd like to find out more, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, then please do purplerainbow.co.uk is where you'll find more details and the next episode of purple rainbow pancreatic cancer podcast will be out on the 30th of november we're going to be talking to a familiar voice from an interview we did last year a catch-up with someone very special <laughs>